Hi, and welcome to another episode of Games and Schools and Libraries with me, your host, Kathleen Mercury. I am so excited today because I have not one, not two, but three guests on the show to talk about something that I think is so incredibly interesting, which is using simulations in a variety of political science contexts. And so I'm, I'm so thrilled to introduce our guests. Um, today we have James Pigeonfielder. We have Mark Harvey and Ryan Gibb. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So, uh, we'll we'll take turns and go in order. So, Mark, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first? Yeah, sure. I am the graduate program director at the University of St. Mary. Uh, I mostly run the MBA program, and I teach in business classes there, particularly international business. But oddly enough, my PhD is in political science, so. I teach some political science courses, too. I'm teaching American government class. I teach international political economy. And my area of research expertise, actually, is the impact of celebrities on politics. So oh, go figure. So, I teach that kind of weird media stuff, too. So we could do a whole episode on, like, Kanye West is what you're saying. It'd be good. We could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for some people listening, not today. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk celebrities another time, right? Another time. Actually, I don't really know too much other than, well, it's fine. <laughs> uh, so uh, Pigeon, James Pigeon Fielder, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello. Yes, I am a political scientist at Colorado State University. You might remember me as Lieutenant Colonel James Fielder from about two years ago, but I retired from the Air Force and I've adopted the civilian life very well. I uh, use ga games in two capacities. Uh, one, I'm avid fan of using games in the classroom to test and assess a uh, student's understanding of concepts. But I also, as far as I know, I'm the only political scientist in the discipline that actually studies emergent politics in game worlds, like when people play World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons or Eve Online, and they develop small political entities. And then I want to see how they carry what they learn in the game out into the real world political decision making. That's interesting. Oh, that could be just even that in and of itself could be a whole a whole show right there as far as that goes. You know, actually having not necessarily played World of Warcraft myself, but certainly um, enough D and D. Uh, so, Ryan, please introduce yourself. Ryan Gibb. Sure. Uh, my name is Ryan Gibb. I'm an associate professor of political science and international studies at Baker University. It's a small liberal arts college in Kansas. Uh, I'm really enthusiastic about game game play, but then also like how that intersects with learning, right? Like how you learn through actions, how you invest in a game. Uh, and I use it in my classrooms. I, I think it's a, a really great teaching tool. Yeah. So uh, when Pigeon suggested that you talk, the uh, part of the reason why that you're all coming together on the show is because you're all working on a book together, an edited volume about games and simulations. So how did this get started for you? Well, I guess I'll, I'll kind of take credit or blame, I guess, for this <laughs> project. Uh, we got together at a conference a few years ago at, in, in Chicago at Midwest Political Science Association. And I was always lamenting the fact that there weren't a lot of people, I think, or at least at the time anyway, doing this sort of thing in the classroom. I've always done it. I've always been really excited about it. And Pigeon showed up in one of these panels, and that's how I met him. We brought Ryan on board, discovered that he also was into this. And, mm -hmm. you know, after several panels, you know, we kind of built a community of people who do this kind of thing and like to write about this kind of thing. And so this edited volume really is going to be contributions of lots of people who are going to offer their different ways to do games in a classroom. And so when you're talking about the audience, you're focusing mainly on at the collegiate level. Is that correct? Mostly, but I also think there probably would be application in a high school or even junior high classroom. The way mm -hmm. that we want to lay this out is, for one thing, we do want to make a theoretical argument as to why this is important and why people should do it. But it also includes different, different games and how to play them in a classroom. So if somebody is doing, an, say, an American politics class or something, there is a, a congressional simulation that they could just sort of plug and play and make it work. I, I think at almost any level, probably from, you know, teenagers on up. 
when we were talking a little bit before we started re- recording, you were talking about how this started from arguments to, towards using diplomacy in the classroom, which I think is really interesting. And so when I had students play in the classroom, granted, just playing the game, because I teach a game design class, so I, could, I can just do pure game play. But when I had students who really wanted to play diplomacy, I made them all sign a letter swearing that they would be friends afterwards <laughs> because of so many people who had told me that playing diplomacy is basically the best possible way to destroy all your friendships. So actually that's a quick question. Have you guys, have the three of you played diplomacy together? Not together. No, not together. no I've not played that. No. Well, I think as your teacher here, I'm going to give you guys that assignment. I think you guys should. <laughs> you want us to destroy our friendship is what you're saying. <laughs> not if you're, no, not if you sign a letter first. Trust me, that letter will solve all of everything. <laughs> well, okay, so, everything. <laughs> well, so, but my point, my, my having, do, my doing this came for a real reason, obviously, is, you know, when you have people immersed in these really intensive gameplay scenarios, you know, you're, you're asking a lot of personal investment from people when they're playing. And, you know, especially when you're talking about wanting to see like emergent behaviors from how people play in these simulations and then how they carry that out into the real world. When you're designing a simulation, what's more important to you? Or is there a difference between that sort of personal investment and engagement and how do you resolve, how do you resolve that with the overall goals of what you're trying to achieve in this simulation? So my take is in the classroom, I, I always start with the objective. Um, I, I don't want to design a classroom game for game's sake, but I want to ensure that it's measuring something uh, that the students need to learn. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, last fall, I taught a comparative authoritarianism course at CSU where I wanted to ensure that the students understood the different uh, authoritarian regime types. Mm-hmm. So, I, working backwards, I created a zombie apocalypse game where each team had to play a different type of regime. And I basically gave them parameters, boundaries, if you will, or constraints, saying, you really need to role play like this, mm-hmm. like under these factors. And they were all unsure at first, but once they started um, playing, they really immersed themselves into what those countries were and like act, act, actually truly behaved as those states would act uh, in a zombie apocalypse, at least per my assessment and my rubric. Sure. D- did they know which real world countries they were, or real world authoritarian regimes they were um portraying or did the, or did you just give them the information without that inf- did you just give them the the constraints without giving them that information yeah it was a uh, notional country they had, they had an idea if i gave them an archetype i said you're going to play this type regime type with these type of resources they might put their finger on the nose and say oh that sounds like north korea but by making an archetype rather than a fixed country it allowed them to be more creative and actually designing their own structures, like their own political structures, independent of, of what they previously knew about a real-world country. Mm-hmm. Ryan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I tend to ground all of my gameplay in, in reality, and so we we do, well, at least the one, the game in the book, we do a lot of research. Um, it's a model diplomacy game, so they need to know the, the character and a lot of the, the deep background to those characters. Uh, so they know what their investments are, what their opportunities are, like what they care about. Um, when I do a, a different kind of game and I've, I've done monopoly in the classroom too, I think students are already invested in it and they learn a little bit about property rights, but I think they, they learn about like zero sum kind of economic activity too. So, so some of it is really grounded and some of it is maybe a little bit looser uh, in terms of the objective being tied to a specific real-world example. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of both. Kind of sure. depends on the game for me. Sure. And Mark, what about you? Well, I, yeah, like Pigeon, I start with an objective, but maybe mm-hmm. I played a little bit looser than that. And I don't know. I also think that you know you don't necessarily have to construct a new game in order to create a new idea. Like my chapter in the book actually is about using risk in the international relations classroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, risk, obviously, 
you know, just regular board game. And I don't want to get too wonky with the international relations about all this stuff, but I'm sure if you're familiar with the game, you know, you try to conquer the world. So it's very much a, a, about the security dilemma, a war against all, people trying to exploit each other and take over the world and what that behavior is like. Well, international relations theory, that's one aspect of it, it's sort of a theory called realism. But, you know, there's other theories that sort of bump up against that and say, well, maybe that's not really the way the world works. And so what I try to do, say, when I play that game, for example, is I try to um, change the outcomes of the game without letting, no, letting students know it. Okay. For example, um, the purpose of the game, the object of the game is to take over the world. My personal object of the game is to try to keep everybody in the game. So... I will do anything. I will amass power and then play in such a way to keep a balance and to keep people basically friendly and supportive of each other. And then just sort of like watch how things play out. And sometimes you don't end up with this sort of really horrible people conquering against each other sort of thing as much as you have something that maybe resembles uh, a real international system. And mm -hmm. so and some of this stuff just is, is interesting how it plays out. One time, actually, I had a, a group, a, a class that had all men in it. And I've been analyzing how different classes sort of play this out and everything. The men obviously behaved a whole lot differently than the mixed classes did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's data to support that, too. So anyway, yeah. what I like about it, though, is that if you get a good game, you can get lots of different lessons about it. Maybe not just the thing that you originally thought you'd get out of it, but just by watching people, you can draw out those lessons and then basically make them applicable throughout the entire course. Mm-hmm. What is really optimal when you're, you know, thinking, constructing, or even implementing a simulation with what you're doing with students? Like, what's the optimal thing that happens? And what's the most suboptimal thing that you've seen happen? Hmm. I don't know that there's such a thing as suboptimal in my experience. I mean, I, I guess suboptimal would be if somebody really just didn't try Sure, sure. But, well, I mean, I'm saying, you know, like, like, what I've if they are trying, and then it just, like, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, yeah. as far as, like, were there any sort of, like, surprises that weren't, you know, I guess, we, we can look at it that way. Was there anything yeah. that happened, like, what have been some of the bigger surprises? I think that takes away some of the positive-negative aspect there. Well, actually, I was going to say that I, I've had, on occasion, students try to sabotage a game. So mm -hmm. somebody basically playing in such a way that they think is going to screw up the whole game. But if you're clever enough, then you can usually make those sabotages look into become learning experiences. Like I did a free trade game, for example, one time where somebody just, you know, pretended they had all the money in the world and they could just buy up absolutely everything. And at the end of the game, I'm like, okay, so let's say this is real life where you're going to get the money to pay for all that stuff. So you're basically a state that is, you know, borrowing like crazy. So what happens when your currency falls, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, even when somebody does things that you don't expect them to do, you know, I think that you can learn from that. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I think that's, that's the beauty of playing games, particularly open games that are, allow certain choices and role playing is, you know, you can learn from the way people act in, in all kinds of environments. Mm -hmm. Pigeon? Yes, I, I have several thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> for optimal, it would be um, uh, first in, in individual sections. Um, obviously, I'll use a game I deployed over five semesters at the Air Force Academy, and I've probably played it over 15 sections. It's that moment where I see students have an aha moment while I'm watching them. They're looking at the information available, and they're looking at the board, and they're talking to other students, other teams, and just seeing their eyes light up. Literally, just seeing their eyes light up. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I get it now. And then having students come to me afterwards and say, you know what? It's one thing to read about this in the textbook. It's another thing to experience it. And I feel like I have, I'm getting, I'm going to get more out of the course now because it was more visceral. Um, then across uh, sections, mm -hmm. in this game, nowhere did I detail the rules that students could make uh, treaties or alliances with each other. Every single section, so again, this is about 15 sections across five semesters, every section came up to me and asked, hey, we want to make an alliance. Is it allowed? And I had to make an adjudication and say yes. So I found it very telling from a research and uh, perspective that students would draw similar conclusions across sections. Now, as far as suboptimal, um, once I did have two students get so heated that I thought they were come to blows. Mm. So I had to uh, defuse the situation. I'd say... 
But I take care of that in a debrief. We'll first debrief them immediately and ask what's going on and calm them down. And then during the actual first end of class debrief and end of game debrief, I ensure that, okay, tell me, tell me what, why you were feeling that way, uh, what decision you were trying to make, how did it affect your future decisions, and what lessons did you get, grab from it. And then take those lessons and leave the anger and the bleed behind. Mm-hmm. Has so far proven effective in any controversial encounters between students, if you will. But that was probably the worst one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to jump in real quick, too, and, and say that like I really like what Pigeon's talking about, about students that come up and ask permission to do things, right? Because mm-hmm. that will happen a lot. One of my favorite answers to that is like you have all the information that you need. Right. You know, like, I don't give them advice at all. <laughs> just let them figure out, hey, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. You know, it's sometimes that's an interesting response, too. Yeah. Yeah. And because especially for you, just seeing how the game kind of grows and lives on its own without you behind it, you know, and I think one in terms of like the student learning, but there's also for you as the designer to see sort of like the robustness of your design and how your design can manage to like, you know, like basically hold together while they're sort of like pushing at the boundaries of it. That has to be really interesting seeing one of these simulations in, in operation. Absolutely. Yeah. And Brian, what about for you? Sure. Uh, I think that's true. I think when students make it their own, and they, you know, when, it's great to watch them go do research outside of the game and say, listen, I, I've been researching this rule and this is what happened, but I think we could have done it differently. And then coming up with new solutions to old problems so that mm-hmm. they try to convince one another um, in, in kind of collaborative gameplay that this is this is what we need to do. Right. Like we've read this, but I, we, we could also just do this other thing. And I, I think really taking on those roles. Um, that's the most exciting thing is, is when students begin to problem solve from the perspective of, of maybe a specific diplomat or country or something. But I think that's also, and, and I think maybe Mark mentioned this too, that's also kind of where maybe it's not optimal all the time, is when, when you have a fair bit of apathy or, or maybe a student try to sabotage the question um, just by, by giving over control or something. And, and, and both Pigeon and Mark, I think, directed this response to saying that, you know, that's some of that is about design, like maybe making people care or making people learn that they can care about this and, and still get involved and still be excited about it. So I think it's, it's up to the game designer a little bit to, to really sell it, to have people buy it and and buy into some of that gameplay because it becomes really rewarding and really exciting when they do. Um, If they look at it as, as, as an activity where they're not reading, they're not uh, clicking, right? Like they're actually doing something interesting that, that either has real world value or is exciting to them for other reasons. Um, I, I think that's the best. That's the optimal. So flipping the suboptimal and making it optimal. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's all we can hope to do. Well, so do each one of you mind giving like a sort of like capsule sort of description of one of your types of simulations so that people can get a really good understanding of like what exactly you do, like choosing one, what your objective is, like how you sort of operate it, just to give a little bit of context for what actually happens in your classes. I'd actually like to start with this one to uh, before dovetail with a comment that Mark uh, made earlier. When it comes to making the game, and I'll provide examples shortly, I'll say war game designer James Dunnigan put it this way, keep it simple and plagiarize. And of course, you hear the word plagiarize in academia, that's bad news. But what he meant is, don't try to make a game from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Look around and see if there are games that are already in existence that somehow capture what you're trying to measure. So, for example, when I did that classroom game at USAFA across five semesters, I actually modified book called International Relations in Action by Brock Tessman, and I added more physical uh, resources in the game for players to handle. So now I can describe that game. Basically, I it was an abstract measurement of realist theory and liberal theory for the students. Like It was very, very abstract countries, very, very abstract objectives. But I did those. I made the pieces chocolate, hmm. actual, like actual chocolate pieces. And that was one, so they could visually see like the resources building in front of them, but also created a sensory that they could smell it, they could touch it. And it was all I could do to keep my students from eating it. Mm-hmm. And they associated it with being a prize. So they'd actually start fighting over this because it was something they could 
put their hands on. Hmm. That's interesting. Because, I mean, especially from you, I mean, because you've run these massive, large-scale, you know, war game simulations. And I was like, oh, cool. And then you're like, and then I gave them chocolate. <laughs> but, I think, but I think that's important, though, because I think sometimes for teachers who might want to do some sort of simulation, it can be really, really unnerving, scary, uncertain when you want to create this big sort of idea and then to like implement it in, you know, and hope that it's successful. And usually, obviously, the first time around, you, you'll learn a lot as far as what's not successful. And we'll get to that in a second. But I love that you're talking about how simulations don't have to be so completely large scale, all encompassing that you can really hone in on a very specific behavior transaction process. And that can be just as meaningful when you abstract from out from it. That's really cool. And now, and now I like to eat some chocolate. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Mark, what about you? Yeah, gosh, I've got a couple of ideas in my head. But again, like Pigeon said, you know, uh, plagiarize or I mean borrow, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's a game that I use called Hidden Agenda. And again, I didn't make this up. This also sort of dates me a little bit, right? This is a game that I played in college. It was a DOS-based game. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have to use a DOS emulator in order to, to play this game. But instead of playing it, having some, I've had students play it remotely on their own and report on it. But what's more fun is to do it live in the classroom. So I'll put it up on the screen. And the object of the game really is to keep uh, a Latin American country or a Latin American, essentially Presidente from being deposed. Right. Mm-hmm. So he becomes the Presidente right after a civil war. And so you, he's got to figure out not only how to uh, facilitate all these factions that have opposing interests and keep things from falling apart all over again, but he also, this is the 1980s, so they have, he has to sort of you know, deal with the United States and the Soviet Union in this great power conflict and which side to take and what to do and spheres of influence. So it's a really pretty complex game, but you can play the whole thing in basically an hour and a half or something like that. And the way I do it is I have students go around and take turns around the room making decisions for this Presidente. And so what's funny about it is sometimes they'll cancel out each other's decisions, they'll get mad at each other and everything, and there'll be all sorts of consequences. And it's it's really interesting. They have to pick four advisors, they can pick them all from the same party, they, they could, you know, sort of mix it up. All these advisors also have their own agendas, they have their own political ideology, they will act to undermine the Presidente at times. And so um, and all of this stuff is really based. The guy who designed this thing did like loads and loads of deep research data, news stuff about what was happening in, in Latin America at the time. And even though it's a Cold War era game, students learn a lot about how politics in the developing world works, how mm-hmm. politics, honestly, in all over the world works, you know, um, the international, the domestic sides of things and how difficult it is sometimes for even um, a politician who has the best of interests to uh, to try to survive without essentially being driven off in a windowless van at the end. Hmm. <laughs> right. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Ryan, what about you? Uh, well, one game that I'd like to focus on is um, this model diplomacy game. And, it, and, and like Mark, I didn't make it up, uh, but it's, it's an online game where the, the website is just chock full of resources and what you do as, as the minister of the game, what I do as the teacher is I have my own set of learning assessment tools, my homework that I kind of introduce to students as we move through. And, and the game is set up so that you, as the president, as the United States, address some international crisis. It could be, it could be a famine somewhere. It could be a nuclear standoff. I'm partial to, uh, to Russian intervention or attacks in, in uh, Baltic states. I think that's really interesting. So I typically have students look at that one issue from a variety of roles within the National Security Council. So the, the game allows you to assign students different roles, the National Security Advisor, the, uh, a ambassador to the UN, maybe a dozen, 15 different roles, including the president. Each student conducts, the learning assessment tools are set up like each student figures out what this role is. Like if you are the director of the CIA, what are your powers? What do you care about? Who is the current director of the CIA? Right? Like they research those roles and, and they learn about the, the crisis at 
most of these crises are real, right? But the response is, uh, is something that's kind of ongoing, right? So there's a, an amount of fiction, but there's also a lot of reality, a lot of true facts. So, so they do all of this, this research, they do all of this, all the studying about what is the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who, who's interested in what, what powers do they have within the National Security Council? What are their interests, Right. So so the ambassador to the U.N. really isn't going to de- deploy a, a fleet of aircraft carriers or something. Right. That's not what they're interested in. The, mm-hmm. the secretary of the Treasury. Right. The sec- uh, what are their powers? What are they interested in? Uh, and all these people sit down and debate things once they know their roles. I break them into more or less diplomatic sections uh, or uh, economic sanctions or more militaristic information sections. And they, they talk about what they could do to to respond to this crisis from the perspective of the United States. There's also uh, the president and vice president. And another role that, that each of these students have within the National Security Council is to try to convince the president to maybe pursue their policy, uh, a specific policy. So they write up a memo. Well, another one of the uh, uh, learning assessments tools is to come up with a policy brief to convince the president about the best course of action uh, within this within the simulation. Uh, and some of them are feisty. Some of them are, are brilliant, long, long, thoughtful memos, uh, trying to convince the president that this is the best policy, not only internationally, but for the constituents back at home, right? Like you got to win an election. Um, it's a, it's a nice, long, thoughtful section for, and it's, I teach this as an intro as part of my intro class, um, within the international relations section of, of that class. It's pretty popular. People people like it when they when they love it. You know they love it. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, one thing that I want to throw in is I gave a talk at Gen Con of this past year on um, using games in the classroom and, and and a big section on adapting games. And so um, I talk a lot about core game mechanics games that have those mechanics and then how you might, you know, want to match those with what you're trying to teach. And so in the show notes, I'll make sure that I post a link to um, the video that I did along with uh, Catherine Croft um, talking about uh, using specific games to teach in the classroom, which I think would be helpful um, kind of going along with this, because like, if you want to have tension in a room, you know, design a game, design a classroom experience around Jenga, you know, and just <laughs> like as that tower gets rickettier and they have to make decisions and how they make all those decisions, you know, um, you can do all kinds of fun stuff just by making, you know, putting Jenga in there because it's such a, you know, great way of visually showing the tension as well as actively adding to it. Um, and I want to talk a little bit, um, so we'll put that in the show notes, but I want to talk a little bit about um, you know, so again, a little bit more into like design, especially as far as teachers go, but I want to look at it through our current framework of teaching virtually, because a lot of simulations, you know, really rely on, you know, students engaging with each other, talking, whispering in the corner, all that sort of thing. And one thing that I think is a benefit, and I am a optimist, but a benefit in some ways of the pandemic is it's really forced us to use technology in probably the more, most meaningful way we ever have in education, you know, in terms of engagement and collaboration, you know, every, from what we teach, how we teach, it's, it's completely transformed everything. And I really hope that there's a lot that what we're doing now will continue. If, if education just snaps back to how it was, I think that'll be a loss. But my, so my question is, when you were suddenly faced with a virtual sim- simulations, what did you do to take what you had been doing and transform it to fit this current climate? Because I think that could maybe help people too see a little bit more under the hood in terms of how you're approaching, you know, your classes and what you're doing. That was quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, in the spring when the uh, COVID and pandemic kicked off, I actually wasn't running games uh, in the spring. I, those are my first large sections in my career. Like at Air Force Academy, most classes were only 25 students. Come to Colorado State, and now I have two classes of 150 students each. And I'm like, I don't, I didn't have anything ready to run by myself for a class that size. So I said, oh, let me do it over, over the summer and think of something. So this fall, I did a two prong approach. Um, first, at Nasaga, myself and four of my uh, friends who work with Evil Beagle Games decided to. Uh, do an ops test, an operational test of a rapid prototype world building exercise where we just had teams 
come in at Nasaga, plus we did several dry runs where they were given two hours to work together over Zoom, Discord, and Google Docs to create an RPG world. And I said, that's it. That's what I want to use. That's my test bed for my class. So for my fall um, Carnival Problems class, which was about 100 students per section, I built purposely built in an end-of-course online game, and I used those methods. But I made sure to assign assistants. Like, I didn't do it by myself. I had first my two teaching assistants helping me. Plus, I found about three student volunteers per section to help me run the exercise. And it had some rough edges, but the students said largely it was a lot of fun and it was a lot easier to run than they expected, and it helped. But they were using tools they were already familiar with. Like most of them had used Discord, most of them had used um, Zoom, and most of them had, well, of course, throughout the semester they used Zoom, and most had used um, Google Docs. So was there a bit, was there anything in particular when you were doing the design that was sort of like like a must-have and it was particularly tricky in terms of how you could shift it to this new environment? I'd, I'd say the biggest obstacle um, was uh, I really had to know how to use Zoom like the back of my hand. Like I had to be able to transition to breakout rooms very quickly. I had to pull students back very quickly. I had to uh, ensure all the students had the most current version because it gave them capabilities that students with older versions didn't have. That was probably the hardest part. Google Docs was seamless. Discord was seamless. But Zoom, I was like I was had to be on top of it from the start of the class to the end. Mm-hmm. So sure it ran well. Yeah, uh, Ryan, what about you? Yeah, I I did teach it this semester. the The challenge was like for me to be optimally safe. I held almost all of my classes outside, so mm-hmm. I didn't have I didn't have tech outside. Uh, I, I right there was no screen. There was nothing like that. So we had to bring everything with us outside, which again was probably the safest thing we could do. But on the downside, uh, I couldn't show them, you know, I, I would hop to maps on the screen to show them like where we are, what we're talking about. Um, I could show videos like that and that wasn't possible outside. So I ended up sharing it. I think like Pigeon said, more or less as, as links for people to go to and, and documents to share. Uh, and we would have done that in person if we could. Uh, but we had to just kind of reference, uh, we didn't have great Wi-Fi outside, so we had to reference materials. And, and so maybe students had to be a little bit more conversant. Like they couldn't rely on on referring to their policy digitally. They either bring it or have it memorized or uh, or else, right? Like we suffered from not knowing it. But, but we would have to generally be more prepared because we weren't going to be, like we weren't going to, we didn't do any of this via Zoom. We, we did it all outside and in person. Um, so we were safe, but we were also kind of Ill, a little bit ill-equipped to uh, to dig into the the simulation like we otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like they were able to still like how close do you think their 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 experience was to what you would normally um, expect to have happen? Yeah, it was a reduced experience because, like you said, people should be in the corner like conspiring. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was that was tougher to do um, outside or it would be tougher to do on online, too, unless we did the Zoom breakout rooms. I guess we could kind of do that. But it's it's a totally different experience than the than the previous semesters where they can kind of convert quietly in a corner and you'd have that interpersonal interaction. um, Right. Which is lost, I think. I mean, this is why we, we don't teach exclusively online. This is why the classroom is so important. Right. It's because you do have that human interaction, right? That's fundamentally different over, over a video. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I'm not teaching game design currently right now. Normally, I would be because I need to have you know people clustered around a table sharing materials, and that's something that I just I can't have happen right now. So I'm having to do other things. So I mean, as as a, as a teacher, like I feel you, you know, when it comes to you know a good approximation of what we could be doing. But it's there definitely is. Uh, um, it's hard when you have to sacrifice some things that you would really you really hate to see go. And Mark, what about you? What about your experience? 
Yeah, I would echo some of what Ryan said. I mean, for various reasons. First of all, I will say that, you know, when it comes down to online learning versus live in the classroom learning, you know, we, we offer some different delivery methods, right? Mostly on, online asynchronous versus live. And mm-hmm. online asynchronous, I think, just is not as, you're not going to get the same benefit as opposed to live. But we were forced into sort of the Zoom situation, which I would argue really is kind of an in-between. Like you get that live element, but you're right, you don't get the sort of chats in the corner. So the question is, what do you do with that? Now, in my case, um, like Pigeon, I, well, I had already done my simulations by the time COVID came around, and I wasn't using as many probably toward April. We were doing different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was such a major shift. I actually had one more simulation planned, but it was just like, you know, our school just called things off for a few weeks. And it was just like, it was total chaos for a little while. Mm-hmm. And so I really didn't get to do anything like that. And then in the, the fall, um, you know, I didn't have the opportunity really to teach any classes that required that. Keep in mind, I'm a program director, so mm-hmm. I probably teach live a little bit less than, than the other guys do. But what's interesting, though, is so, and, and we were also live in the classroom, too. We were back live, masked up for fall. So, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't, it was, it's, it's an odd thing and that, you know, we actually, they didn't want us to use Zoom as much. And so now this term um, we're, we have a late start. We're starting our n- new semester in February, and I think it's going to be mostly live, but I still have to kind of figure out, like, what do you do with that situation? And so, like, I've got this risk simulation that normally would be, you know, a bunch of people sitting around a table. What I'm pondering doing at this point is giving them a computer simulation, unfortunately, not even one they can play together. They'll play against a computer and then write back about that. What I think is going to be interesting is going to be a data comparison between what happens when one person plays against virtual players versus what happens when they're live, you know, in in a room. So I think from a research perspective, I think it's going to be interesting, but there are limitations and also cost limitations in terms of being able to get a game that's, you know, more interactive that would actually do what, what I would hope and need it to do. The positive thing is, though, is the other two simulations that I use in this particular class, um are not ones that really require students to be super close, right? They can talk across the room from each other. But again, like I said, that doesn't really answer your question about the virtual aspect of it. I mean, I think that there's some wonderful, I think that Zoom is a wonderful tool. I think it's been great in in many, many ways. And I think lots of these other tools that we have have been, have been great. But, you know, like I said, there are limitations. I mean, I just think about like when I have had to run some live Zoom classes, like, okay, you know, how do you even recognize students in a classroom? Some students, they, they feel like they're a little anonymous. They're this little box. I found right. usually I had to call on people yeah. and sort of say, Hey, I, you know, what do you think there? And you know, it's, it's a really different kind of a dynamic and, and I'm not sure it's completely positive. Well, do you think though, and I don't, would, would, I'm not planning on um, talking on virtual learning the whole time, but in some ways in the real world, you don't have all of the actors in the same room to like work everything out in an hour, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways with what's happening virtually, you know, I mean, this is why we do simulations because we can do these things quickly in an hour and a half with all the actors in the room. But in some ways, isn't this more realistic for the real world? And does that impact the way that you've approached or designed this? I think that you have a really good point, but I also think that the challenge with that is actually sitting down and trying to take the time to design a game that actually adjusts to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, speaking as myself, someone who is, you know, both full-time administrator and full-time teacher and doing way too much right. to do, you know, I if I had the creative space as a teacher to sit down and figure that out, I think you are absolutely spot on. But I think what a lot of us ended up doing in COVID is just like, what can I do that I already know how to do and do it in a virtual classroom to the best of our ability? Because, you know, we're already trying to figure out how to adjust to this new mode and all these students that are shell-shocked and know what they're doing and some adapt great to it. Some are having a really hard time. And, you know, and then you go to a live classroom and then you've got the social aspects of social distancing and everything. And there's, there's so much on your plate that it's been really, really hard, I think, to sort of capitalize on that creativity. I don't wouldn't speak for everyone, but I that's really been my experience. I don't mean to cop out, but like it's been a crazy year. Oh, I I mean 100%. I mean for me personally, teaching online, everything takes 2 to 3 times longer than 
it does in you know in, in normal lifetime teaching, you know, from planning, executing, grading, everything just takes so much longer. So I <laughs> I absolutely understand what you're saying as a teacher. And as I said earlier, normally I'm teaching game design right now. And instead of trying to take advantage of all these various online tools and ways that I could have kids play games online and design games, I'm not. And I'm going to wait and I'm going to hope that by fourth quarter we can do some sort of semblance of it. So no, no, no harm, no foul there, good sir. I absolutely understand completely about what you're talking about. So I guess for, for Pigeon, for you, you have you did work. You created that. You said you took the summer off. You know, you worked on it. Um, were there any things that came out of when you were using Discord and Google Docs and Zoom? Was there anything in particular that you thought, yes, this is good. This is actually helping my simulation. Yes, I want to keep using this. I, I think what uh, what helped the most, and Mark hinted at this, it was just it's because I was using tools that students were already familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it made it seamless. Um, actually, I've coined it. I think I've coined this term. I call it surface um, recognition or surface avoidance. Like. Mm-hmm what it takes to train a player to get into the game, or do they have pushback that they just don't want to be online anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to use something like Tabletopia in the classroom. And I even, I was very interested in the saga when I heard that uh, there was an educator who used, not only used Tabletop Simulator in the classroom, but made it, it was one of her required quote textbooks, unquote, mm-hmm. so the students had to own a copy. Uh, but she's taken the time to learn the ins and outs so she could run it seamlessly. Yeah. So I guess the big takeaway for me is just how um, be, even being an experienced uh, game design, classroom game designer and even having run large war games with teams, I was still nervous if this was going to come off. But it was it was just very easy. Using the tools I knew how to use, it was very easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ryan, any thoughts on that for you? Yeah. Uh, I think both uh, Mark and Pigeon... We talked about this, but we asked all of our authors and maybe our publisher has asked us, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but to, to rethink our games for online, because we don't know if this is the, we don't, you don't know what the future looks like, right? Like we right. could be back online again in a year. We've all been challenged and, and asked to rethink what these games look like if, if they have to be done exclusively online. And I think Kathleen, you're right that, uh, that there is an element of reality to fixing this problem here and now with the people in, in this room, um, because that, that, that does exist. It's, it's just, a, it is a little bit tougher via zoom, right? Like to, to say, go talk to one another to, you know, I mean, we all worship at the church of zoom right now and the students kind of, they are, you know, they, they are like, this is their life too. And this has been their life for, for a year. So we're all a little bit, used to it, but it's in some, uh, some ways it is a little bit clunky and it takes you out of the moment. Mm-hmm. If, if you all have to hop into a breakout room or, or like move on to this document and you're not physically there with, with one another. So, so we're all kind of like trying to figure out uh, how, how to make this the real world example. And, and right now, I guess the real world is, is kind of on our, our PCs talking into microphones and into cameras like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's just it. Is that we've we've been challenged to like think about your simulation, your game, how to do that uh, in person or online if if that's if that's what you need need to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I might also add that that in a way, Zoom is the game. You know, it's it's a completely different activity. And like my kids are are learning at home virtually, and I watch them on these iPads. And they're learning some amazing real-world skills on these iPads, but it's like it, that's the thing. It isn't a simulation; it's reality. The simulation mm-hmm. is, is like a pandemic hits, and now you've got to do education. What do you do, right? right. <laughs> it's an interesting game, but it's a real-life game, right? And I guess yeah. I guess people have different access to that too, right? Like so, if if yeah. if you are on a on a pad at home, it's one question. But like, I have so many students that just have variable access to both internet and and a working you know camera phone, right? Kind of screen. Yeah, well, I just I guess there's just that part of me that just thinks it's so interesting where you take real life and then you make a simulation and then you smash that simulation up against like a new world and just seeing like kind of what happens from there. Um, I mean, is yeah, yeah, just but. 
anyway, um, we'll talk, let's talk about like <laughs> happier times. So <laughs> where do you see yourself going as far as like when it comes to using simulations or, and, and even like for others, um, we can get into that too later as far as like how, other, what others could do, but for yourselves right now, what do you see? Like, what are you most excited about seeing what you can do next? I'll jump in and say, look, after working with these two guys on this book mm-hmm. and talking to some of the people, you know, especially like Pigeon introduced us to some of these professional game builders here last week. I'm just thinking about how can I make my classes even denser with role playing opportunities? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I make even more of my class like a game? And again, that takes some time. But like, I just think that there's just so much opportunity for students to learn by creating new experiences and playing different roles. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that gets me excited. Mm-hmm. Pigeon? I'd say for me, it's um, now having one uh, large academic classroom game under my belt. Um, I've got more confidence in how I'm going to run it in the future. Uh, for example, uh, one mistake that I made in the fall was I sort of backloaded the entire game. It was mostly a capstone. And some of the feedback I received from students was, you know, it was fun, but man, it would be nice if we had been doing stuff like this throughout the semester as opposed mm-hmm. to just at the end. So this semester, I baked it into the entire course so they actually have these little gates all the way leading up to like the final confrontation at the end. And then I guess learning how to effectively assemble a team to help me. Whereas the large war games I did in the past, I had a team come here, me and my TAs. Well, now I know how to kind of manage them and assess uh, the student volunteers who help me differently than the students actually playing the game and assess them fairly. Ryan? Yeah. Well, so one of the things that's kind of an imperative at, at my university is like, well, trying to assess what the, the students get out of your class, right? Like what can they brag about on, on Vita or resumes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so across the different classes that I have, I try to have them mimic, right. Or practice uh, policy briefs or, or legal briefs or memos that they might write. So that, at the end of the four years, they can say, look, you know, like I might not have been in a firm for four years, but here's a portfolio of briefs and memos and things that I wrote that are applicable. Uh, and so it is a simulation in, in one respect, but it's also something that they can show right at the end of their four years. They say, you know, I've, I've done these things in the classroom and it may not, I might not have been like it. it sometimes it is internships. Sometimes it is something else, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's a little bit tied to the reality of, of maybe what they can do. And, and I think that builds confidence for students too. Like if, if I've done this in practice, I can do this in reality. So, so more definitely more denser games like uh, that Mark said, but also uh, like tying some of these things so that it, tying these things to skills or expectations that future employers might have so that they can say at the end of, of graduating, I've got this cool degree I had a, a kick-ass time doing it, and like, there are a couple of documents that I can show as as writing samples, essentially. Mm, that's a good point. That's a that's a really really good point too, because I think a lot of times, you know, when I, you sort of look at this from like a objective student learning and sort of like that sort of being like just the egg and that's it. But then especially looking at how this is something that students can carry forward and take with them, like that, I think is a really good point. Um, so if, if there is someone who's wanting to create some sort of like a you know, teacher at some level, wanting to create some sort of simulation. Now, we've talked about a lot of different things as far as, you know, understanding your tools, understanding your team, if you have one, um, as far as like starting with objectives, um, you know, not reinventing the wheel, looking at what exists. What are some other pieces of advice that you would give for somebody who wants to try to do some of this work in their own classroom and they don't have any experience? I would first say read our book. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. And then then I would hand it off to Pigeon. (laughs) So 
Soda underscore and italicize, right, in bold, and what Mark said, another part of each of these chapters is there's an assessment section. Like, oh. how did you assess your learning objectives? Like, how do you know that you, these things are working? What are you going to change between iterations? So I think because Mark and Pigeon did a great job of saying objectives first, know what you're going to do, mm-hmm. assessment last, right? Like, know how you're going to assess what you what you want students to learn. Mm-hmm. And if, if things change, then you change. Right. Right. I'm going to go do a little bit of shameless self-promotion, but it's it's academic. Um, two <laughs> years in a row now, I've taught a classroom game design short course at uh, Colorado State University's Professional Development Institute. And for the course, I developed a living document. It's about 10 pages long so far, where it has an actual game design checklist, uh, a recommended reading list, a recommended game list, uh, if you're going to play one, two, immerse yourself in different mechanics. Also as some software tools like um, Vassal, Tabletopia, uh, Astral, World 20, that sort of thing. And if in the liner notes, I'll leave my CSU email. And if anyone wants it, just ping me and I will just send you a copy of that list. Oh, that's right. That's great. Yeah. Because I think too, especially for, you know, there's a lot of things that can be really intimidating for a teacher who's wanting to do this. And our two great enemies as, you know, teachers at any levels, you know, time and money, you know, in terms of like, how much time do I have of actual instructional time with my students? And then what's my budget? And both in terms of like, I guess, nowadays, your own mental bandwidth, as well as like actual money in terms of what you need to spend in order to make something like this happen. And so um, I think, having as many resources available to help people with this through this process, I think is important. And we, uh, Pigeon just messaged me that we have not mentioned the book title. <laughs> so um, would you like to, <laughs> would you like to state the name of your book, please? <laughs> yes. Yes, ma'am. Games about frontiers, simulations in the political science classroom. It's going through Taylor and Francis. Uh, our final manuscript is due in August, so we're assuming it's that assuming the manuscript doesn't completely fall apart, it'll be published sometime in early to mid twenty twenty two, maybe late late twenty twenty one if we hustle. Right, and I'm, and I'm sure we'd love to come back and talk to you more about it sometime then. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, I would I would love that as well. Um, I mean, really, because especially seeing like once you start to get feedback from others and seeing how other people are using your ideas and seeing what happens when um, it goes live out in the field and you know seeds start to be planted and to see how that um, is successful. Um, I mean, because for me personally. Um, I have a website and it's everything is totally free. So when I say self-promotion, it's not really, but um, that's one of my favorite things about sharing all my game design resources is just seeing how they're being used all over the world and being translated into different languages and just, you know, blowing on that little dandelion just to see what happens. And I think, especially for what you're talking about, there's such a interest and need and demand for this, you know, when it comes to really creating a meaningful experience for students and for yourself too, honestly, as uh, as a teacher, as an instructor, you know, to give students an experience that they would not have otherwise. I mean, for me, that's one of my big motivating factors is always how can I give something, you know, like you said, to, to prevent them from, you know, being, you don't ever want our students to be bored, right? And so how can I give them something that they couldn't get anywhere else or they haven't gotten anywhere else? And how can I make that happen for them? I think is such an important part of what we do in education um, to make it as good as we can for our students. Are there any last thoughts that you would like to add as it relates to this? I would just encourage anyone who is in education to take the idea of playing games or doing simulations in the classroom seriously. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a fancy game designer. I mean, I think that's something that you can aspire to if you have the time and you have the inclination, but just thinking about how you learn yourself and thinking about what what makes you excited and how can you share that excitement or how can you deliver the content in a more creative way i just think that it's you know it it shouldn't have to take that much time although if you love it maybe Mm -hmm. it will take you some more time you know but i would just say it's 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 definitely worth whatever time you put into it because i almost guarantee you most or all of your students are going to think this is the best part about your class Mm -hmm. 
It's certainly what they'll remember. I mean, that's what, when you think back to the experiences we remember as students, it's when we were engaged and active and hands-on and doing something, you know? And I always say too, like, you know, kids would rather play a bad game than, <laughs> than maybe listen to a great lecture, maybe, <laughs> you know, just because that they're, they're, they're engaged in the world. They're part of the story, you know? And I think, um, I've, it's funny because I've been teaching uh, this semester and last using uh, on Khan Academy, there's Imagineering in a Box, and it's teaching kids all about how to create your own worlds, basically, at Disney. But it's so interesting in terms of, like, how human-focused it is and just trying to, like, capture all the sense and everything. And just, like, But it's so, like, student-focused, you know, or, like, you know, on your guest and so focused on that. And I think it's um, a lot more – it's a lot deeper than I thought it would be as far as, if I, okay, yeah, we're going to design rides, and that's not the approach that it takes, you know. So I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, what you want to do for your students, how you want to do it um, – you know, they will appreciate your efforts. You know, don't be afraid to try something out. Don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to say, this is something I'm working on. And then especially the debriefing is so incredibly important. Like what, how did this fit what we wanted it to fit? And what can we do to make this, if I do this again, what should I do differently next time? And, you know, there's no better source for you than for the students who experienced it to give you that feedback to help you improve it. I mean, certainly your own experiences and observations, but never, ever, ever discount the importance of the students and their experiences in terms of what you're doing. So Ryan, any last thoughts for you? Uh, as a teacher, though, your passion is contagious. So, and so when you're excited about something, it's much more likely that your students will be excited and buy into it, too. Uh, when they get to co-create the world, whether whatever its real tie is to reality, right, like whether it's real or not, um, then I, I think they get more excited about it. So um, Pigeon had a chapter. I'm not sure if it's going to make it into the book or not, but, but gaming to fail, right? Like learning from lessons and, and not being afraid to uh, try something out with your students and say, how is this working? How are we doing? And I think when they get to co-create the game and the world that you're playing with, I, I think that really carries over well. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think your passion is contagious uh, and, and they'll buy into it more, right? Like when, when they get to play this game and have a hands-on experience. So I'm going to push on that a little bit because in some ways, and obviously I know nothing about all the chapters in the book and the page requirements you have and all that other stuff, but I would argue that's probably one of the most important chapters that you can have. Um, a few years ago, I gave a presentation at Tabletop uh, Networks uh, game, um, at their Game Designers Conference, and I was on the second day. And the first day, all these different people who were much more <laughs> prolific game designers than I am with many more games than I have, basically all covered what I was planning on talking about. So that night, I was like, what can I talk about that none of these people have talked about that is unique to me and what I do. And one of the things that I talked, what I ended up talking about was with my students, my seventh grade students who I have designed games, many of them do not like games. Um, I hopefully get them to like them a little bit more. Um, they don't necessarily like game design. Um, and, you know, for me as a person teaching game design, a lot of it I've had to make up on my own and make improvements to the class based on how I failed my students, how how I was teaching it wasn't, didn't necessarily fit, didn't get to the objective, wasn't achieved, you know, like so much. So I always say, like, if I could go back and apologize to the kids I taught five years ago, I totally would, you know, and, and, and it's a joke, but it's, it's like because of like how much better I've gotten. And so many of those lessons that we get is through failure. And one of the reasons why I was really excited to give that talk and the feedback that I got from it was because a lot of times in game design, we talk about when it goes well. And, you know, it sounds so easy on paper. You just look at the objectives and then you have kids do these things and then, you know, it's great. But the reality is like, you're going to struggle and you're going to fail a lot more. And I think without knowing at all <laughs> about the book and all the different chapters that you have in the careful selection process of curating that, I think it would be, a, I think you would be remiss to not include a heavy dose, a heavy deep dive on what failure looks like, why you shouldn't be afraid of it and how it's one of your best tools as an instructional designer. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and say that, like, I think that we're, we're keeping it in there as far Good. as I know, but, and even if we didn't, then we definitely, I agree. We need that dose, but I'll, I'll even say something a step further from that is that a, a lot of students are afraid to fail in any way, Correct. right? 
especially in an academic environment. It's like, I have to get my grade. I have to pass this class. You know, those students that take things seriously, you know, they're, they're under a lot of pressure or even those that don't take it very seriously are certainly under pressure not to fail. Right. Mm -hmm. But what's great about a game is that you can set up a situation where they can fail and like when I do my games, I don't tie it to points, you know, and maybe a reflection, but not the game itself, because you want people to take risks. And that risk taking is a really important skill to develop. And it's hard to develop in a classroom unless you create something that's hypothetical where they can fail and, and really learn from the experience. I'm sorry, Pigeon, were you going to say something? Okay, I was just going to add, it's just a, it's just a technical thing of the my chapter, if you will, originated as a conference presentation or a conference paper, and it can't just be inserted as written in the book. It's going to, I have to read structure in such a way so it refers to other chapters in the book. So it's a matter of, um, I can't really revise it until I see the revised chapters that are incoming, and all the chapters are due by about mid-March. Mm. And at that point, then I can start saying, well, Instead of having this conference reference, I can edit it to say, such as mentioned in chapter 12 or 11 or something like that. So. Okay, I'll let you off the hook a little bit. Look <laughs> <laughs> what you started, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take on all three of you. I don't care. Let's do it. We're going. Gloves <laughs> are off. <laughs> well, no, I'm glad. To, and I think because I, you know, I think that's something that whenever you know, as a, as a, as a, as a teacher that you're, you're venturing off, you know, and, and anyone, you know, whenever you're like, we have, you have to take a risk too, as a teacher in order to do this. And that's one thing is, especially for me, if I'm not willing to take risks, you know, then how can I ask my students to do it? That's how I started designing games because I asked them to do it. And it's like, I can't ask them to do something I'm not willing to do. And that empathy that you get from being in that first position, you know, is what I'm saying is when students are helping you, like they understand that you're right there with them, just maybe from a different place, but you're right there with them. And I just signed my third game. So that's super exciting. Um, Cause it like, and I was like, it works, you know, like, Oh my gosh, the process I've been talking about these kids, like who knew, <laughs> I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's I, I think that's one thing though when it comes to wanting to do something like this is you know having that sort of like you know healthy awareness of yourself and your own limitations and just being open to what happens not seeing it as you know it's like a super cheesy you know sort of you know poster you could buy for the wall I'm sure but you know um, pessimists see obstacles as failures and optimists see them as opportunities. And you can be a super pessimist, but I think in this case, whenever you're doing any type of design work with students, you know, you have to see every obstacle as an opportunity to make it better. Just my personal little plug there. So uh, making lemonade over here. So well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said it tastes good. It's just delicious. Just delicious. Um, especially with a little Grand Marnier. That's my personal favorite. Try it. <laughs> Please, your final thoughts. So uh, I offer, um, was it two or three quick ideas? Um, the first idea, it helps to play games. So if you get a chance, you know, yes. get online, uh, play, use Tabletopia, go to Steam, and you can find a lot of very cheap online board games. Um Go to your friendly local gaming store, and sometimes they'll even have games available that are open that you can evaluate. If you can't play, if you don't have time, um, go to boardgamegeek.com and read about different games, or go to YouTube and watch Let's Play videos so you can see different games being played and try to absorb some of those mechanics that you're seeing played and try to think about how they might apply to your course. And finally, we might be making it set like Mark, Ryan, and I are used to running large-scale games, but it doesn't have to be complicated. It could be a single lesson. It could be very abstract. So, um, let's say for your first classroom game, you don't game, you don't have to overthink it. Just think of how you can keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler as Einstein said, uh, to make it work for you and the students. Yes, excellent point. So, no, but I think I, no, but everything you guys have said um, this whole time has been so incredibly helpful towards um, wanting to you know for 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 teachers at every every level wanting to do some type of um, simulation hands on uh, practice with their students. Um, lots of good ideas, and certainly the book. Games Without Frontiers, Simulations in the Political Science Classroom, which obviously could obviously be applied to other, you know, settings as well. It's just this is, you know, how you're focusing this, but, you know, 
many a many a teacher could extrapolate from there, I'm sure. Um, to close us out, could each of you go in order and say how people can get a hold of you um, if they're interested in knowing more? And we will share links in the show notes for all this contact information, as well as um, websites and anything else that you want to share too. But for right now, Mark, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I would say email is probably best. Mark.harvey at stmary.edu. Uh, I'm at the University of St. Mary in Leavenworth. There's more than one St. Mary out there. So I guess that's probably the easiest way. I also uh, can be reached, of course, social media on Twitter. So uh, either email at james.fielder at colostate.edu, not Colorado State, Colo, C-O-L-O, state. Mm-hmm. Or my website, www.jdfielder, D as in dog. And Ryan? Uh, rgib at bakeru.edu is my email address. I think that's probably the best. My constant New Year's resolution is to become better at Twitter, uh, and I constantly fail. So I have a Twitter account too, but I just don't use it. <laughs> Again, <laughs> now you don't have to check that either. Huzzah, well done. Well, and so <laughs> and so the full set of contact information will be posted in show notes, like I said. So if Mark decides to share his Twitter handle with that, check the show notes. It's going to be a fun surprise to see. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, again, thank you guys so much for this. I think there's been a lot of really interesting things. Certainly um, there's so many different things that we could definitely dig deeper on, you know, for more information. So, and certainly when the book comes out, um, I would love to chat with you about it. I do want to mention one thing too. One place is uh, NISAGA, the North American Simulation and Gaming Association is one of the most unique conferences that I've had the privilege of going to um, and participating because you have an active, engaged, small group of people who are willing to play test any type of simulation, any type of game that you're developing. There's lots of amazing research that's being presented as far as um, how people are using games and simulations. You also have a lot of people from the business world, a lot of um, corporate trainers who attend. And so you get a whole different perspective uh, from there as well. So if you are interested in doing some of this work, um, please check out Nasaga. They also have a lot of really great online resources right now because their last conference was virtual, as many are. So um, definitely, definitely, definitely check that out. It's worth looking at. And this has been another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. I'm Kathleen Mercury. You can find all of my game design teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.com. And until next time, have fun, keep playing games, and <laughs> do the best you can in this crazy world. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilop, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games in Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. 